Section One of National Geographic Magazine, Volume One, Number Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Rivers and Valleys of Pennsylvania, Part One, by William Morris Davis. Introductory. One. A plan of work here proposed. No one now regards a river and its valley as ready-made features of the earth's surface. All are convinced that rivers have come to be what they are by slow processes of natural development, in which every peculiarity of river course and valley form has its appropriate cause. Being fully persuaded of the gradual and systematic evolution of topographical forms, it is now desired in studying the rivers and valleys of Pennsylvania, to seek the causes of the location of the streams in their present courses, to go back, if possible, to the early date when central Pennsylvania was first raised above the sea, and trace the development of the several river systems then implanted upon it from their ancient beginning to the present time. The existing topography and drainage system of the state will first be briefly described. We must next inquire into the geological structure of the region, follow at least in a general way the deformations and changes of attitude and altitude that it has suffered, and consider the amount of denudation that has been accomplished on its surface. We must, at the same time, bear in mind the natural history of rivers, their morphology and development. We must recognize the varying activities of a river in its youth and old age, the adjustments of its adolescence and maturity, and the revival of its decrepit powers when the land that it drains is elevated and it enters a new cycle of life. Finally, we shall attempt to follow out the development of the rivers of Pennsylvania by applying the general principles of river history to the special case of Pennsylvania structure. 2. General Description of the Topography of Pennsylvania the strongly marked topographic districts of Pennsylvania can hardly be better described than by quoting the account given over a century ago by Lewis Evans of Philadelphia in his Analysis of a Map of the Middle British Colonies in America, 1755, which is as valuable from its appreciative perception as it is interesting from its early date. The following paragraphs are selected from his early pages. Quote, the land southwestward of Hudson's River is more regularly divided and into greater number of stages than the other. The first object worthy of regard in this part is a reef or vein of rocks of the talky or isinglassy kind, some two or three or half a dozen miles broad, rising generally some small matter higher than the adjoining land and extending from New York City southwesterly by the lower falls of Delaware, Schuylkill, Susquehanna, Gunpowder, Patapsco, Potomac, Rappahannock, James River, and Roanoke. This was the ancient maritime boundary of America, and forms a very regular curve. The land between this reef and the sea, and from the Navesink Hills southwest, may be denominated the Lower Plains, and consists of soil washed down from above 
and sand accumulated from the ocean. Where these plains are not penetrated by rivers, they are white sea sand, about twenty feet deep, and perfectly barren, as no mixture of soil helps to enrich them. But the borders of the rivers, which descend from the uplands, are rendered fertile by the soil washed down with the floods and mixed with the sands gathered from the sea. The substratum of sea mud, shells, and other foreign subjects is a perfect confirmation of this supposition. And hence it is that for forty or fifty miles inland, and all the way from the Navasinks to Cape Florida, all is a perfect barren, where the wash from the uplands has not enriched the borders of the rivers, or some ponds and defiles have not furnished proper support for the growth of white cedars. From this reef of rocks, over which all the rivers fall, to that chain of broken hills called the South Mountain, there is the distance of fifty, sixty, or seventy miles of very uneven ground, rising sensibly as you advance further inland, and may be denominated the upland. This consists of veins of different kinds of soil and substrata some scores of miles in length, and in some places overlaid with little ridges and chains of hills. The declivity of the whole gives great rapidity to the streams, and our violent gusts of rain have washed it all into gullies, and carried down the soils to enrich the borders of the rivers in the lower plains. These inequalities render half the country not easily capable of culture, and impoverishes it, where torn up by the plough, by daily washing away the richer mould that covers the surface. The South Mountain is not in ridges like the endless mountains, but in small, broken, steep, stony hills, nor does it run with so much regularity. In some places it gradually degenerates to nothing, not to appear again for some miles, and in others it spreads several miles in breadth. Between South Mountain and the hither chain of the Endless Mountains, often for distinction called the North Mountain, and in some places the Kittatinny and Piquelin, there is a valley of pretty even good land, some eight, ten, or twenty miles wide, and is the most considerable quantity of valuable land that the English are possessed of, and runs through New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. It has yet obtained no general name, but may properly enough be called Piemont from its situation. Besides conveniences always attending good land, this valley is everywhere enriched with limestone. The Endless Mountains, so called from a translation of the Indian name bearing that signification, came next in order. They are not confusedly scattered, and in lofty peaks overtopping one another, but stretch in long, uniform ridges, scarce half a mile perpendicular in any place above the intermediate valleys. Their name is expressive of their extent, though no doubt not in a literal sense. The mountains are almost all so many ridges, with even tops, and nearly of a height. To look from these hills into the lower lands is but, as it were, into an ocean of woods, swelled and depressed here and there by little inequalities, not to be distinguished one part from another any more than the waves of the real ocean. The uniformity of these mountains, though debarring us of an advantage in this respect, makes some amends in another. They are very regular in their courses, and confine the creeks and rivers that run between. 
and if we know where the gaps are that let through these streams, we are not at a loss to lay down their most considerable inflections. To the northwestward of the endless mountains is a country of vast extent, and in a manner as high as the mountains themselves. To look at the abrupt termination of it, near the sea level, as is the case on the west side of Hudson's River below Albany, it looks as a vast high mountain. For the Catskills, though of more lofty stature than any other mountains in these parts of America, are but the continuation of the plains on the top, and the cliffs of them in the front they present towards Kinderhook. These upper plains are of extraordinarily rich level land, and extend from the Mohawks River through the country of the Confederates. Their termination northward is at a little distance from Lake Ontario. But what it is westward is not known, for those most extensive plains of Ohio are part of them. End quote. These several districts recognized by Evans may be summarized as the coastal plain of nearly horizontal crustaceous and later beds just entering the southeastern corner of Pennsylvania. The marginal upland of contorted schists of disputed age, the south mountain belt of ancient and much disturbed crystalline rocks commonly called Archean, a space between these two traversed by the sandstone lowland of the Newark formation, the great Appalachian Valley of crowded Cambrian limestones and slates, the region of the even-crested, linear, Paleozoic ridges, bounded by Kittatinny and Blue Mountain on the southeast, and by Allegheny Mountain on the northwest, this being the area with which we are here most concerned, and finally the Allegheny Plateau, consisting of nearly horizontal Devonian and Carboniferous beds, and embracing all the western part of the state. The whole region presents the most emphatic expression not only of its structure, but also of the more recent cycles of development through which it has passed. Figure 1 represents the stronger ridges and larger streams of the greater part of the central district. It is reproduced from the expressive topographic map of Pennsylvania, 1871, by Leslie. The Susquehanna flows down the middle, receiving the west branch from Lockhaven and Williamsport, the east branch from Wilkes Bar and the Wyoming Basin, and the Junita from the Broadtop region south of Huntingdon. The Anthracite Basin lies on the right, enclosed by zigzag ridges of Pocono and Pottsville sandstone. The plateau, trenched by the west bank of the Susquehanna, is in the northwest. Medina sandstone forms most of the central ridges. 3. The Drainage of Pennsylvania The greater part of the Allegheny Plateau is drained westward into the Ohio, and with this we shall have little to do. The remainder of the plateau drainage reaches the Atlantic by two rivers, the Delaware and the Susquehanna, of which the latter is the more special object of our study. The north and west branches of the Susquehanna rise in the plateau which they traverse in deep valleys. Thence they enter the district of the central ranges, where they unite and flow in broad lowlands among the even-crested ridges. The Juniata brings the drainage of the broad-top region to the main stream just before their confluent circuit cuts across the marginal Blue Mountain. The rock-rimmed basins 
of the anthracite region are drained by small branches of the Susquehanna northward and westward, and by the Schuylkill and Lehigh to the south and east. The Delaware, which traverses the plateau between the anthracite region and the Catskill mountain front, together with the Lehigh, the Schuylkill, and the little Swatstara, and the Susquehanna, cut the Blue Mountain by fine water gaps and cross the Great Limestone Valley. The Lehigh then turns eastward and joins the Delaware, and the Swatara turns westward to the Susquehanna. But the Delaware, Schuylkill, and Susquehanna all continue across South Mountain and the Newark Belt, and into the low plateau of Schist beyond. The Schuylkill unites with the Delaware near Philadelphia, just below the inner margin of the coastal plain. The Delaware and the Susquehanna continue their deflected estuaries to the sea. All of these rivers, and many of their side streams, are at present sunk in small valleys of moderate depth and width, below the general surface of the lowlands, and are more or less complicated with terrace gravels. 4. Previous Studies of Appalachian Drainage there have been no special studies of the history of the rivers of Pennsylvania in the light of what is now known of river development. A few recent essays of rather general character, as far as our rivers are concerned, may be mentioned. Peschel examined our rivers chiefly by means of general maps, with little regard to the structure and complicated history of the region. He concluded that the several transverse rivers which break through the mountains, namely, the Delaware, Susquehanna, and Potomac, are guided by fractures anterior to the origin of the rivers. There does not seem to be sufficient evidence to support this obsolescent view, for most of the water gaps are located independently of fractures, nor can Peschel's method of river study be trusted as leading to safe conclusions. Tietz regards our transverse valleys as antecedent, but this was made only as a general suggestion for his examination of the structure and development of the region is too brief to establish this and exclude other views. Lowell questions the conclusion reached by Tietz and ascribes the transverse gaps to the backward or headwater erosion of external streams, a process which he has done much to bring into its present important position, and which for him replaces the persistence of antecedent streams of other authors. A brief article that I wrote in comment on Lowell's first essay several years ago now seems to me insufficient in its method. It exaggerated the importance of antecedent streams. It took no sufficient account of the several cycles of erosion through which the region has certainly passed, and it neglected due consideration of the readjustment of the initial immature stream course during more advanced river life. Since then, a few words in Lowell's essay have come to have more and more significance to me. He says that in mountain streams of very great age, the original arrangement of the longitudinal valleys often becomes entirely confused by means of their conquest by transverse erosion gaps. This suggestion has been so profitable to me that I have placed the original sentence at the beginning of this paper. Its thesis is the essential element of my present study. Philipson refers to the above-mentioned authors and gives a brief account of the arrangement of drainage areas within our Appalachians, but briefly dismisses the subject. His essay contains a serviceable bibliography. 
If these several earlier essays have not reached any precise conclusion, it may perhaps be because the details of the geological structure and development of Pennsylvania have not been sufficiently examined. Indeed, unless the reader has already become familiar with the geological maps and reports of the Pennsylvania surveys and is somewhat acquainted with its geography, I shall hardly hope to make my case clear to him. The volumes that should be most carefully studied are, first, the always inspiring classic, Coal and Its Topography, 1856, by Leslie, in which the immediate relation of our topography to the underlying structure is so finely described, the Geological Map of Pennsylvania, 1856, the result of the labors of the first survey of the state, and the Geological Atlas of Counties, Volume 10 of the Second Survey, 1885. Besides these, the ponderous volumes of the final report of the first survey and numerous reports on separate counties by the second survey should be examined, as they contain many accounts of the topography, although saying very little about its development. If, in addition to all this, the reader has seen the central district of the state, and marveled at its even-crested, straight, and zigzag ridges, and walked through its narrow water-gaps into the enclosed coves that they drain, he may then still better follow the considerations here presented. End of section 1